Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Mike. I'm on staff here at the church as our director of outreach. And I have uh, the awesome privilege of batting lead off here for this new sermon series that we are beginning today called Genuine Church. And so as we look at Living Water Community Church, our local fellowship here, I think it can be demonstrated just how important and central the Word of God is to us here at Living Water. When I think back to my first encounter with this church, it wasn't in person. Uh, It wasn't via Zoom or live stream. Those things did not exist back then. Uh, My first encounter with Living Water was through a cassette tape. Now, we're going back some years. You remember cassette tapes, right? After records and 8-tracks, but before CDs and MP3s. So that's how I got to know Living Water. And back at that time, I was attending a church that uh, they they would read a little scripture. They might read something from, say, 2 Corinthians. And then the minister would get up and uh, he would do like a 10-minute homily. But it almost never referred back to what was read from 2 Corinthians. And I was a brand new Christian at the time. Just really unfamiliar with the Bible, never read it. And I remember sitting there week after week thinking, what in the world is a Corinthian? Like, are you going to tell us anything about what we just heard? I mean, evidently there's more than one. This is second Corinthians. How many Corinthians are there? Like, does it have anything to do with that guy from Fantasy Island and Corinthian leather? Like, I need some help. And I sat there starving from what I wanted to receive. I wasn't getting it. That is until at the job... Uh, a friend of mine, a guy named Tommy Hurst, shout out to Tommy Hurst, he handed me a cassette of a sermon by one Pastor Mike Leonzo. You may know him. And as I was listening to it for 40 plus minutes, this Leonzo guy is reading the scriptures, he's, he's explaining them, he's telling me what they mean how I can apply what I'm hearing to my life and giving me some very practical help uh, of ways to put what I'm hearing into practice. And I said, this is what I want. This is what I've been craving, the Word of God. And I think it's safe to say that over the close to now 20 years that I've been part of Living Water, that has not changed. That has not changed. So the question might be why? Why such an emphasis on the Word of God? Why why stand before reading it? Why do we uh, go through it verse by verse, plodding along very methodical as we preach through like 1 and 2 Timothy, which we just finished? You know, why not read some of it, but then when we come to something that's really challenging or controversial, like say women in ministry, Let's just skip over that because it's going to cause some problems. There's going to be, you know, some people raising questions. And and why don't we just kind of pick and choose what we want from the scriptures? And maybe even just 
why the Bible alone? I mean, why not, you know, go to some other religious texts from time to time, you know? Uh, read a little from the Quran or, you know, the Vedas or the Bhagavad Gita or the Book of Mormon. Why not those? What about the whole genre of self-help books that are out there? I mean, maybe there's some good content within them that would benefit us. You know, and preach through seven habits of highly effective people. Why not do that? Why the Bible week after week? Why the emphasis? What makes it so special? Well, here's where I want to start. I want to start with what does the Bible say about itself? Right from Genesis chapter 1, if you were to just flop open your Bible and begin to read it, right there in Genesis 1 and throughout, you're going to read, And God said... Or, thus saith the Lord, if you're a King James Version reader. Right? God speaks. We have a communicative God who wants us to know certain things. He wants us to know about Him and what He's like and what He expects of us. He wants us to have a good understanding of who we are and how we ought to relate to Him. And, and he wants us to know how we ought to relate to one another. Basically, how we ought to live our lives. He desires to communicate that, and he has. So then the question really comes down to, can we trust it? I mean, how do we know what we're reading is true and trustworthy? Well, Numbers chapter 23 has something to say about that. Verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man, that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Some rhetorical questions that the answer is assumed. The Psalms go on. Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Psalm 119, very long psalm, all about the word of God. Verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. See, God cannot lie. It goes against his nature. It goes against who he is. He is truth. So we can trust what we read, and it's all that we need. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about the sufficiency of Scripture. You may remember, all Scripture, it's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, in the Word of God, we have everything we need for life and godliness. God knows all things, and He shares information with us, he speaks, and because of his character, he cannot lie. And those uh, form for us a solid foundation on which we can place our trust. Now, you might be inclined at this point to say, hey, Mike, um, you're using the Bible to support the Bible. You're making a circular argument. After all, the question is, can we trust the Bible? You can't say, well, we can trust the Bible because the Bible says it's trustworthy. You're arguing in a circle or begging the question, which is a very common objection when you deal with the authority of the Scriptures. 
See, when people say that, though, I don't think they fully understand the nature of ultimate authorities. All ultimate authorities are necessarily circular. Let me show you. So if you have someone who says, I reject the Bible, I, I don't believe it, it's not an authority in my life, rather, I trust my own human reasoning. If you ask that person, so why do you trust your human reasoning, your own ability cognitively to think about issues and arrive at correct conclusions? Right? Isn't that the question? Why do you trust the Bible? That's what we're talking about. Well, why do you trust your reasoning? As soon as they open their mouth, what are they going to give you? A reason. They're employing their reason to justify their reasoning. They, too, are arguing in a circle. Because all ultimate authority claims, they're all necessarily circular. There's no way around it. They are reasoning that their reasoning is valid. Do you see the circularity there? See, they're, they're necessarily circular because if you appeal to another authority for your ultimate authority, your ultimate authority really is not your ultimate authority. That other thing is. Right? There must be a, a, a foundation. It must end somewhere. There needs to be a, a stopping point, a bedrock foundation where we go no more and we say, this is it. And that is your ultimate authority. It can't just you know, keep appealing to others in a never-ending manner. Reminds me of uh, a, a science professor. A scientist was given a lecture on the earth and how the earth is suspended in space. It's not resting upon anything, which is exactly what Job actually says, one of the earliest, if not the earliest, book of the Bible that we have. He's given this lecture about the earth suspended, free-floating in space, and a little old lady raises her hand, and she says, that's not correct, sir. She goes, the earth is actually resting on the back of a turtle shell. And he's like, okay. Not sure where you're getting that from, but I'll play along. So what's the turtle standing on? She goes, another turtle. And he says, all right, so what's that turtle standing on? And she says, oh, you're such a silly scientist. It's turtles all the way down. That is a logical impossibility. It just doesn't work. There must be a bedrock foundation, right? For which we can trust what we're every we can test every truth claim against it whatever that is that's your ultimate authority that stopping that stopping point that foundation we all have it the question is what is it and for the christian it should be the word of god but for many it may not be and we'll get to that see I demonstrated that human reasoning and all other ultimate authority claims are necessarily circular, but human reasoning is especially dangerous. Proverbs 14, 12 say this, There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Earlier in Proverbs, we're told in whom we should place our trust. Ms. Dell prayed it earlier. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord, not yourself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. See, why does the Bible make this point? 
And it doesn't weigh more than just those two examples I gave you. It's constantly saying you ought not abandon God's word for something else. Why? Because this is nothing new. This has been the way it is since the very beginning. And I mean the very beginning. Genesis chapter 2. Let me read this text here for you. It says, The Lord God took the man, that would be Adam, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, here we have God speaking, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, eat of it, you shall surely die. God has just put forth a truth claim. He says, in the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. That is either true or false. Right? Law of excluded middle. He made a proposition. It's either true or false. But a few verses later, who shows up? The serpent. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, just a harmless question, just, did, he, did he really say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That's what you call adding to the word of God. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, Satan has put forth a truth claim. Right? God isn't the only one speaking. Satan speaks too. And we have what God said and what Satan said. So here's Eve. She's presented with two opposing truth claims, two competing truth claims. God said this, Satan said that. How does she respond? Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She weighs the two competing truth claims, and she says, I'll decide for myself. Not, God, you, you have only told me the truth. I, I have no reason to doubt you. I, I'm going to go with you. Get behind me, Satan. It's not what she says. She takes it upon herself to look at the tree, and she reasons, that fruit looks good. Looks tasty. It seems I can gain some wisdom if I eat. Maybe God's holding out on us, right? Why, why, wait, why can't we eat from that tree? Well, because God said so. Yeah, but why? Why? Well, there must be something there for us, and maybe we won't die. What is all of that? That is all human reasoning. That is what she's doing. And it's human reasoning that stood in total opposition to a very clear command of God. And then Adam, right there, old silent Adam, just standing by, he partakes as well, and we have been eating ever since. 
even to this very day, abandoning the infinite, infallible revelation of God in favor of our own finite, fallible human reasoning. That's why Proverbs says to us in chapter 1, book of wisdom, right? Wisdom literature, right out the gate, chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, people want to be able to distinguish right from wrong, truth from error on their own when that says right there, you must begin with God. If you want to know anything, you start with Him. See, if you're someone who's looking for wisdom and knowledge, do you know where they're found? It's not within us. Colossians 2 tells us where they're found. It's in Christ are hidden all. Don't miss that. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So my question is, where are you going for wisdom and knowledge? Yourself? Another fallible human being who maybe has some initials or degrees after their name? Or are you going to the creator, the Christ? Because it's in him where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. See, and can we just be honest here? I mean, we, we may give lip service to the Bible. Yeah, you know, I, I believe the Bible. But when push comes to shove... I think we demonstrate sometimes it's really not our own, it's not our ultimate authority, it's rather our own reasoning or something else. People will say, I'm a Christian, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but I don't believe the Bible, at least not all of it. I like that part, you know, I mean, that. hey, he died for me, I don't have to suffer, he suffered for me, well, that sounds good, I'll take that. And like a buffet, we approach the Bible saying, well, uh, the love of God, that sounds real good. I'll take some of that. I'll take a couple spoonfuls of his kindness, of his grace, his mercy, his compassion. I like all of those. right? I, I, I'm all about God loves me, protects me, cares for me, provides for me. He gave himself for me. Those are really good doctrines. However, when it comes to those things we find less palatable, that we just don't find as appealing, you know, dying to self, denying self, taking up a cross, following after Christ, the wrath of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God, the doctrine of hell, the exclusivity of Christ, right? what the Bible has to say about sexuality, what the Bible has to say about boyfriend and girlfriends shacking up together. What the Bible has to say about gender. What the Bible has to say about life in the womb. Those, eh, I pass over those as I make my way through the Bible buffet. Because those don't appeal to me. And those, who's the authority? You are. You are. I mean, can we just be honest? That's what's going on. You're rejecting the plain teaching of Scripture. I think there's many paths to Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. You've directly opposed it. See, God says one thing. The, the God of this world, lowercase g, Satan, says something else. And if we're the ones weighing which ones we're going to believe and which ones we won't, who's the one holding the scale? 
It's you. It's you. In effect, you're saying, I know better than God. Which is a pretty audacious claim, right? The, the one who has infinite knowledge, who created it all, is upholding it by the word of his power. Yeah, I know, I know more than he does on this issue. Culture tells me so. Not Jesus tells me so. You know, we, we sing that in preschool, right? You know, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? How do you know that? Epistemology, right? How do you know that? The Bible tells me so. But now when it comes to those controversial issues I just mentioned, now we throw it away because we're, we're our own authority. So if you're tracking with me here, the question becomes, all right, what does the Bible say and can we trust it? That's really what it comes down to is the veracity of Scripture. Is it truthful? And what many people want to do to answer that question they go outside the Bible. They look for something like corroborating evidence that would support the Bible, like some archaeological evidence or something from the field of geology or some sort of scientific evidence. But my point earlier was if you point to those for the Scriptures, the Scriptures aren't your ultimate authority, it's those. If it's, you know, I believe the Bible because of excavations, in archaeological digs. I believe the Bible because of certain rock layers and fossils. I believe the Bible because of discoveries through scientific inquiry. See, those actually are the ultimate authority for you if you're point, pointing to them for the reason you believe the Bible. Again, the buck must stop somewhere. And I'm saying, for the Christian, our bedrock foundation of our beliefs is the Word of God. It is the foundation on which all other truth claims rest. So whatever that is, that's your ultimate authority. In his book, The Ultimate Proof of Creation, Dr. Jason Lyle says it this way. He says, if we argue that the word of God is true on the basis of some other piece of evidence, then we're teaching people that the Bible is less foundational than human reasoning. Again, there's something deeper is what he's saying here that we really point to and trust. We would essentially be teaching that man's ability to understand the evidence is the ultimate standard, not God's word. Now, lest you think that that is merely Dr. Lyle and Mike Bongo's viewpoint on the matter, I think it's God's viewpoint. And I would point you to Luke chapter 16. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? Two men. Two men, they both die. The rich man, in torment, he makes an appeal to Abraham to send Lazarus back to his five brothers to warn them not to experience the same fate that the rich man is experiencing. I love how he's still ordering around Lazarus uh, in, the, in the afterlife here. And in verse 27, we pick it up. And he, that's the rich man, said... Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Who are they? That is the law and the prophets. Basically, the Old Testament. They have the scriptures. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, 
they will repent. He said to them, if they do not, he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. See, evidence alone convinces no one. No one. The appeal here is to what? It's to Scripture. That's Father Abraham's view, right? See, if we think we have some evidence that is so persuasive to persuade us or persuade others, here we have the notion of a man risen from the dead appearing to people, and we have on the strength of God's word, that's not going to convince anyone. You think fossils are going to do the job? How often do people say, if God would just appear to me in person, then I would believe? No, you won't. No, you won't. Because that has already happened. And people still doubted. Matthew chapter 28. Very end of the book, just before the Great Commission is given. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mound to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, who's that? That's Jesus, post-resurrection. He's risen from the dead. They worshipped him, and here it is, but some doubted. They are in the very presence of the God-man. The resurrected Christ is standing there in their midst. And they're like, nah. Whatever kind of evidence you think you have unearthed or discovered, it ain't better than that. All right? And they still doubted. Evidence is not the issue. I love this quote from Blaise Pascal. He hits the nail on the head. He says, In faith, there's enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. God must step in. God must intervene. He must enter into this and change our heart, change our disposition, speak to our dry bones such that we come alive and say His Word is truth. Because that's what happens at regeneration. My question to you is, have you heard His voice? Did He speak your name, call you from death to life, when you were dead and unresponsive and he brought you to newness of life. Has that happened for you? And now when you read the Bible, he speaks to you. You're part of the sheepfold. You're hearing the voice of your shepherd. Does that happen to you? What did Jesus say in John 10? Jesus makes this point. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Drop down to verse 25. Jesus answered them. Who's that? that that's the crowd gathered there opposing what Jesus is telling them. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You know, in a certain sense, if you ask me how I know the Bible is true, my answer is because I've read it. I've read it with the eyes of faith that God has given me, with a regenerated heart that he has given me, I now read 
and believe. It's really that simple. 66 separate books written over 1,500 years. More than 40 authors from different economic and social and occupational backgrounds written in three languages, three different continents, yet one common thread. How a sinful, rebellious human race can find peace with a holy and perfect God through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the scriptures from Genesis to maps. That's it. All the way through one common thread. How does that happen? Supernatural. Bible tells us where we came from and where we're going. It has all this explanatory power that we cannot discount. It's the best explanation for what we see around us, the world we see around us. It explains it the best because it's written by the Creator. It explains why the world is the way it is. It ought not surprise us when we see this world in a tailspin. The Bible has already told us. It ought not come as a bit, well, what is going on here? Are you reading your Bible? I mean, you abandon God's Word. What do you expect to happen? You know? It correctly diagnoses our condition, both on a personal level and on a corporate level in society. J.C. Ryle, this is one of my favorite quotes. He said, give me a candle and a Bible and shut me up in a dark dungeon and I'll tell you everything that the whole world is doing. Isn't that good? That is really good. And that is our foundation for truth that we can trust. So now, you know, maybe, maybe you're here today and you're like, Mike, you know, I'm not, I'm not opposing the Scriptures. I'm not trying to stand in judgment over them. I'm not, I'm not objecting. I really do want to submit to what God has said. But, you know, I, I struggle. I'm kind of one of those, you know, show me. I'm, I'm from Missouri. I don't know, what is that, the show me state? You're like, I need, to, I, need to, I need a little more. You got any help for me? I do. I do. I have some help in the form of an acronym, the word help, all right? First, H, honesty. Notice how honest the Bible is. It records people's behavior, whether it was good or bad. There are numerous accounts of very godly people, David and Peter come to mind, doing some very ungodly things. And if it was to be sanitized and cleaned, like we wouldn't have what we have today. Those would be conveniently omitted, but they're not because the Bible is honest. The disciples, right? How often are they portrayed as lacking faith, lacking understanding, cowards, right? It's the, it's the women who, who go to the tomb first. They're the brave ones. They run to all the women. Go ahead, go ahead, I'll let you... I'll let you revel in that. Man. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, they're hiding. The women are going to the tomb. Who knows what's going to happen there, right? Well, we know now because God has told us. But why would men start up a religion to show just how cowardly they are in the face of fear? Makes no sense. Peter's called Satan by Jesus. You know, you think Pete would be like, hey, um, hey Mark, um, can you kind of etch that out of the text, right? The biblical record, like, can you, that's not my best moment. 
right? Peter denying Christ three times. Peter is one of the church leaders, if not the leader, right? Listed first in the list. You think he didn't have some pull to, to have, you know, some sort of say on what gets recorded and what doesn't? Have, have that account stricken because it doesn't make me look very good? Could have done that. No, the scriptures are honest. They record squabbles and rebukes amongst church leaders. There's all these hard sayings we must deal with, gory descriptions, unpleasant details. But it's not a sugar-coated message. It's one of the things I love about it. It gives it to you straight, just unadulterated. This is truth, and it reflects reality. And, and how often is reality ugly and difficult? Why would you expect a description of reality to be any less than that? The Bible is honest. E, E in the word help, eyewitness testimony. Right on the pages of Scripture, we have these events recorded by people who saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears. Again, our boy Peter, he says in 2 Peter chapter 2, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We ain't making this stuff up. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us regarding the resurrected Christ that he appeared to more than 500 people. And he gives us this additional detail, most of whom are still alive. Why would he say that? It's as if he's saying, listen, you don't believe me? These people are still alive. Go, go find them. Look them up. They'll tell you they saw him. If you're one of those people seeking evidence, there you go. There you go. L, the L in help. It's lasting power. The Bible has lasting power. No other book in human history has been dissected, critiqued, banned, burned, and ridiculed the way the Bible has. You know people are motivated to do so. There's a potential of eternal conscious torment for people who are still in their sins on the day of judgment lest they come to Christ. People don't want to hear that, of course. You mean to tell me I'm going to suffer forever? I'm taking that book down. And they try. Here it is. Still here all these years. How so? Supernatural. Has endurance. You know, it stands still here today, and I believe, don't quote me on this, I could be wrong, I think it's the best-selling book every year. Still, this ancient text, every single year. How is that? Lastly, the P, we have prophetic evidence. We could be here all day if we were to pour through all of it. If we were to only limit our scope to the messianic prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ, which there are hundreds of them, uh, we, there's, there, we could be here for a while. I have in my Bible, I put right in the front here, just a sampling of some of them. And we have uh, testimony from major prophets, minor prophets, the Psalms, that Jesus would be born of a virgin. We see that confirmed in the New Testament, that he would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2. You know, these verses we hear at Christmas time, confirmed in the New Testament, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, beaten, spat upon, and that he would rise from the dead. All of that prophesied before Jesus ever entered this earth, ever born in a manger. Amazing, prophetic evidence. And lastly, let me, let me have you consider its message 
of grace. This is so important. Every other faith book out there will tell you this is what you need to do to be accepted by God. To my knowledge, all the major ones, I mean, maybe there's some work that I'm not aware of, but all the major literary works, religious texts, this is what you need to do to be accepted by God. The Bible says you can't do it, but it was done for you. It was done for you. All these texts have God up here, mankind down here, and you gotta, you got to reach up. you got to climb up. you got to work your way up. Only biblical Christianity where God comes down. He comes to us. He stoops to our level and takes on flesh and says, you know, there was a life that you were supposed to live. You failed miserably. I'm going to live that life for you. And then because you failed so miserably, through your sin, you deserve death. But I'm going to die for you. And I simply command you turn and trust me. Your works will not save you, but I will, says Jesus. No other book says that. There's no other book that has that sort of message. Let me, let me conclude here with a, a story. I, I ran into a, a Mormon gentleman the other day, and we were talking about this very topic. We were talking about the grace of God. And uh, you know, he was nodding his head, which if you ever had a conversation with a Mormon, uh, you, you really have to get down to the nitty-gritty because there can be a lot of agreement when you're actually talking past one another. And so I'm talking about God's grace, and he's like, yep, yep. He says, uh, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do, which is from 2 Nephi in the Book of Mormon. If you talk to a Mormon, you will probably hear that verse quoted, right? Book of Mormon. And I said to him, I said, um, that, that, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I'm saying something very different than that. It's all of Jesus from start to finish. For it is grace that we've been saved by grace through faith, not our own doing. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one could boast. If it was of works, then grace is no longer grace. But he persisted. And he, and he said, listen, here's, here's how it works. He says, I do my best, Jesus does the rest. And, and my response to him was, no, I've blown it, that's why I need an atonement, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, if we're going to do the whole rhymey, sing-songy kind of thing. <laughs> and I thought about it later, I was like, I could have had more. I, I was thinking, my life's in pieces, that's why I need Jesus, I've gone wayward. That's why I need a Savior. My life's a mess. You don't know the half of it. That's why I need Jesus, the advocate. You know, I think that's pretty good. You know, it's like a multi-syllabic rhyme scheme, right? You know, half of it, advocate, right? Move over, James Axel. You're not the only one that can rhyme. Or, or, we can simply quote the scriptures, right? Let the word cut. It's a sword. Let it do its work in our lives and as we talk to others, albeit a Mormon or anyone else. So as we make our way through this series on the genuine church, let's remember the central 
point of, of, our, of our worship service. It's the Word of God, the centrality of the Word of God. It, it governs all that we do, the songs we sing, the prayers, the way we do church. It is so central, so important, and that's why we cannot abandon it for anything else. Nothing else will suffice. No other religious text, no other self-help book, no our own human reasoning, not my corny rhyming cliches. It's the Word of God. It's in here. It's true. It's trustworthy. It's powerful. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. It's changed my life. It changes lives. I hope it's changed yours. Let's pray. Lord, your word is truth. It's eternal. It's forever settled in heaven. It's a guide, a fire, a hammer, a seed, a sword, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It heals. It's living and active. It makes simple the wise. It gives knowledge. It convicts of sin. It restrains from sin. It makes free. It illuminates. It produces faith. It converts the soul. It's spiritual food. It searches the heart and mind. It produces life. It refutes error. It defeats Satan. It will forever prove true. It's holy. It equips. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped for every good work. It pierces the heart. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from its sight. All things are open and laid bare to him with whom we have to give an account. Lord, thank you for your word. May we read it, may we believe it, and may we share it for our good and the good of others. And may you receive all the glory. Thank you. Amen.